Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the DevOps Speakeasy Season 2. I am your host, Kat Cosgrove, joined by my lovely hatted co-host, Baruch Sadagurski. Baruch, say hello. Hello, Kat. Thank you again for taking over. You are doing it much better than I do. <laughs> I have a better radio voice. I don't know that's if that's sure. actually true. Chris Short and, and Luke's voice in the game. It's, I don't yeah. know, I insisted for being audio only. No one can know that, but I can assure you. Nobody watches a podcast. That's true. You can find me on Twitter at Dixie3Flatline. Baruch, where can people find you on the internet? At Baruch everywhere. And we are joined by our guest, Austin Parker, the Jason Momoa of DevOps. Austin, where can people find you and you know, tell us who you are. Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter and pretty much everywhere else at Austin L. Parker. My day job is I'm a principal developer advocate at a company called Lightstep. We're an observability company. And to make that into a short, short description, we help you understand what's going on in your complex systems. Mm. Yeah, I don't Very know exciting. what's going on in my complex systems most of the time, but I am kind of like nosy and anal retentive. Be curious about it. Curious about it. I'm hella curious about it because I gotta, I gotta know. That's why I like tools like Artifactory because it gives me like easy access to a shitload of extra information about what's going on. So, uh, specifically, what kind of uh, shitload of extra information does Lightstep give me? Lightstep is a distributed tracing and metrics tool. So you give us application metrics, infrastructure metrics, uh, traces from the different, you know, services you have running in your application. And we combine all that together and we help you find insights in it. If you know things like Grafana or Jaeger or Zipkin are tracing, you know, tracing tools, Grafana for dashboards, things like Prometheus for metrics, so we're a you know in that same vein, right? We take this all this data that you have, all this telemetry about your application and your services, and you you throw it into this. And the nice thing that we do that really I think sets us apart is we integrate all this stuff together very well, right? So instead of having like one tab over here where you're looking at you know your traces, and another tab over here where you're looking at a dashboard, and a third one over there where you're looking at logs, and none of this stuff is connected. We bridge all those different types of telemetry across each other and use some fancy statistical analysis to find interesting things so that when you're in the middle of, you know, an incident or you're trying to figure out why things are breaking after a deploy, we'll surface relevant insights for you and help you drill down to the service or the system that's actually causing a problem, right? Maybe it's an external API, maybe it's someone, you know, some service two or three jumps away from yours deployed a new version and that broke something. That's the sort of stuff that we can find really easily by connecting all these different types of telemetry together. Hmm. Sounds like a good tool for um, developers or ops people who are lazy. I mean, that's why be. I work there because yeah, I, yeah, like <laughs> I'm extremely lazy. So I was like, oh, these people are making something that really speaks to that. Actually, it's funny because I I had the the place I worked before this, I had the exact, I was like the person that wanted to be lazy, but couldn't because I was like the DevOps guy for this pretty complex like platform. And we, we had just horrible amounts of just various different, you know, testing configurations of things. We had like 20 different environments for stuff. 
that was an absolute nightmare to keep track of, right? So when something broke at like three in the morning, the only way you know something broke, the only way we really knew anything broke was like you come in the next day and be like, oh, well, these tests didn't run or uh, these VMs crashed or, or whatever, right? And then you'd have to kind of like, like, well, we lost that test, so it's time to queue up another 12-hour one. And the only way to actually investigate this was to look at a bunch of logs and just start grepping across 20 or 30 different VMs and log the files. And, and, yeah. yeah, it's horrible, right? It's It sucks. I would spend the worst parts of that were like when we were coming up to a release. Uh, we were a very, we had a lot of enterprise customers, so we did a lot of, you know, releases on a pretty regular cadence, but not a super, you know, we weren't releasing daily. But there was a lot of stuff that went into each release, and so we would have to do weeks and weeks of verification on each release. And losing one night, you know, losing one night of progress because, like, this particular configuration went kablooey, that really hurts your schedule, right? That really hurts not only your ability to actually ship out the software, but also it messes with everyone else, right? Because now people are blocked down the chain all the way back to the developers because they can't actually close the tickets out until they get these successful test runs. And, you know, since they're not going to sit in their hands for a day, they keep adding more stuff in. And now, you know, we're just we're pushing everything to the right, right? We're just taking all the stuff that needs to happen earlier, moving it later. And it was a nightmare to deal with. And a lot of my days were wake up, go in, spend four hours looking, trying to figure out what happened, see if we can get a fix turned around in like two hours and then start the test again and hope that it didn't break this time. So when I heard about what LightSup was doing, it was very like, ah, this is a much better way. That's very un-DevOps. It uh, was extremely like... un-DevOps. <laughs> but thankfully, that company doesn't exist anymore, so I can... Uh... Yo! <laughs> that has something to do with them being very un-DevOps, I hope. Uh, a lot of complex reasons. Yep. So did you first try to like use Lightstep's tools at that job, thinking this is going to make my life easier, this is going to, you know, uh, we're going to ship stuff better, or did you see that Lightstep existed and immediately go like, deuces, I'm out? It's kind of a weird story there, because I, I remember reading about distributed tracing, like, while I was there, right? I saw a Jaeger, I think Zipkin is what someone showed me first, but it's like, yeah, it's really cool. It's, you know, you put all this stuff together. And I, I used stuff like New Relic um, and Datadog while I was there. And that actually get, was a really interesting experience because what it kind of showed me was that you can have really cool monitoring tools, you know, and you can have really cool, now everyone wants to call themselves an observability tool, but really at the end of the day, like you're monitoring something, right? You have a dashboard, you're monitoring that dashboard. You're looking for what changed or what's different. So I, I brought in um, those, like Datadog actually, and it was cool because it's like, oh, here's these pre-configured dashboards and here's all this stuff. And I, I gave those to the devs and I'm like, look, now you can kind of self-start, right? You can diagnose some of this stuff yourself. You can see where like the memory usage is increasing or whatnot. And they're like, oh, this is cool. But like all it's showing me is just like, hey, the memory usage went up. Why did it do that? I'm like, well, at least it gives you a time window to like go sure. look at the logs. That's a place to start. That's better than right. like, blindly pawing around in logs like an animal. You would think that, but we still had some adoption issues. Um, what I learned from all this was like, you can make like something really broad and can do everything, right? But what I think is really valuable to people that are trying to use your software, people are trying to use your monitoring software or whatever, is like, you need workflows. You know, it's not enough to just say, hey, here's a really cool dashboard. 
Like a really cool dashboard is nice, but by itself it doesn't do a lot. But what what if you know when you see that really cool dashboard and you click on something, the dashboard does something for you, right? That's one thing we we just added to LightStep is this idea uh, we call it change intelligence, and the idea is you see a change, you click on the change, and then we tell you what caused the change, and that works in you know our dashboard. So it's like oh you got your normal dashboard, you see your little lines going up, down, left, right. And then you see when you're interested in, you click on it, and then we'll kind of do all of that like, oh, okay, this is the time you're interested in. Now let's go look at all the stuff that happened during that time and tell you and surface the most relevant stuff or the things that, you know, change the most or change the least. Like sometimes it's something happened that it shouldn't have happened, but also sometimes it's something that should have happened didn't happen. Because it's a general, you know, it's very generalized, it avoids, I think, some of the problems you see in more like purpose-built deep monitoring solutions. There's a lot of them out there, right? There's stuff for like Java. That's If you're like a 100% Java Spring sort of place, you probably have stuff that you use and like. If you're 100% Ruby, there's stuff that's very tailored for that user experience. I would say one of our big differentiators is that we we don't necessarily have that like, oh, this is just for Java people. But that can be good because it means it's for everyone, right? You are. Yeah, I mean, and I don't think that many shops are exclusively one language anymore. Like more and more being like polyglot. Yeah, it's it's a polyglot application a lot of times these days, which is, you know, also why people like shit like Artifactory. You can throw it all in there, you know, and. Ultimately, what we all want as developers is to be able to be lazier, right? Like. It's not I pretty much stressed out and feel like you're clawing around, unable to figure out what's going on all the time. That sucks. Uh, who who was it that said like the most important qualities in a developer were laziness, hubris, and oh god, what was it? I think it was the inventor of Perl. Yep, said that. Yep, yep. Uh, makes sense. Perl is definitely a language for the lazy. <laughs> Pearl is definitely not a language. Or whoever reads that, oh, I, yeah, no. I can't do it. I can't. I can't. I, I had a buddy who used to do a lot of Pearl for um, Motorola, like peak Motorola. God, Motorola used to be so. Uh, for uh, a part of Motorola that I don't necessarily know that he gets talked a lot about, a lot about but my recollection it was for like there used to be a big part of Motorola that did a lot of stuff for Walmart. Because they had a very large contract for like various point of sale and inventory stuff. And yeah, no, like quite a bit of that was, that's uh, still running today probably, is, it was all Pearl. There's a couple others. Like I want to say a, a very large company you've probably heard of that sells tickets to things has an extremely large amount of Pearl in production. Yep. Really? Yep. Yep. It's well, everywhere. And it it shows on how it works. Yeah. It's not an ideal system to use. I guess we're going to avoid naming names here. Are they litigious? Uh, I don't know if they're litigious or not, but I just eh. feel like it, it's pro- for various <laughs> reasons. I don't feel like naming names uh, of these people, but they're very <laughs> lovely people. The people can read between the lines. The people know who. Yeah, uh, yeah, they're. I don't. Verbally, it's it's pretty clear. It's like the company with the fruit on their logo level of. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Obscuring the name, it's pretty much. 
Yeah, very but large great, great company that sells but, tickets to events. There are no, not many. And there's not many, but I will say this: those uh, that were there would both buy the very large company that sells tickets. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> What's impressive, though, is like, and this is one thing I think it's missed a lot in sort of the the tech world these days. Is if it works, why change it, right? Like. There's a there are a lot of places that you know modernization is going to be helpful, right? But there's a lot of places where if it ain't broken, don't fix it, right? The, the thing is that you will discover that it's broken in the less convenient time, right? It will crash on your biggest event, like I don't know, like Black Friday or whatever, when you lose tons of money, or you will discover that you are unable to deploy uh when when your your s is on fire because you have been hot. yeah but i think that i i had a talk about this once where it's like we say legacy software and it's like uh you know is that really the right word to use it's almost it's more like vintage software vintage retro uh, yeah the tension really comes down to not necessarily scale in a lot of cases although there are a lot of times that scale is going to be a concern because as you grow with this thing the high watermark is always what the last high watermark was, and it never really, like, that high watermark is always going to have the potential to increase. You know, you're always, there's always the potential for some greater spike of users or some greater amount of traffic or whatnot. And you're right, you don't know. But you probably have a lot of, like, not only institutional memory and muscle build up around this, like, you kind of know where its warts are, you know what that red line is, and you've had to deal with those so long that there's a real cost to switching that and moving to something unreliable. If not even a technical cost, just like a kind of psychosocial, you know, a people cost in that, hey, there's a bunch of people here that this is what they know how to do, and this is what they do, and if we get rid of this, then what are those people going to do, right? So I, I think it has to be balanced. It's not a, I don't think there's a simple like, oh, just throw everything out and rewrite it in Java 11 or whatever, or Node or Go or Rust. But let's try to build systems where like those differences matter less and we can just use the right tool for the job. Yeah, on the right tool with the job, that's why I don't like to uh, engage in much like public hatred of particular languages. Like I'm pretty open about not liking Java. <laughs> Otherwise, like I don't make fun of people who write Node.js or yeah. Ruby or whatever. Or even people who write Perl, like PHPs. I've written enough PHP and I don't really want to do it ever again, but it still has its place. You know, there's a tool for the job situation and you can't do some things that JavaScript is not good at. Python is fucking great at. And that's okay. (laughs) Could you do it in JavaScript? Sure. Is it the best tool for the job? No. And like, well, that kind of defeats your (laughs) argument for hating Java because why it is different from anything else. Uh, mostly it's because the, some people in the Java community are obnoxious about it. And also, other communities are obnoxious about other languages. That's also doesn't have, no. I mean, if you, if you think that the language is outdated, not appropriate, boilerplate, whatever you call it, we can argue about that, but if you say like all languages are fine, kind of defeats the purpose of yes, but I no, don't. Not all languages, some suck. <laughs> like, That's true. Brain it, fuck sucks. <laughs> brain fuck does suck. What a terrible I, fucking language. I and will when, say that. I, here's the thing. My 
my my anti-java moment if you will permit yeah oh no get in there oh yeah yeah i i'm going to be the java advocate yeah. i'm ready you, yeah, you can go my problem with Java is actually not the language conventions at all. Um, I think that Java is a perfectly fine language for what it is. Like, I generally, like, I prefer .NET on some level, but that's mostly because I've written more .NET, you know, more C Sharp than Java in my lifetime. The thing that I will give Java a lot of credit for is the developer tooling ecosystem around Java is second to none. Now, the problem with it is that it's very opaque. Uh, like Maven, Groovy, Gradle, all the various build tools, all the various performance optimization tools, the sort of the application container, you know, the servlet model, all this sort of stuff. Like it's great. There's a massive community for it in terms of like support. You, know, you have a lot of options. You have all the options. It's sort of like, hey, I'm going to go build a car. And I, I don't necessarily know what kind of car I want to build at the beginning. So I'm going to build like just a basic car, but then I start driving it and it's like, Oh, I need to tweak this and I need to tweak that. Right. Java is sort of that language because you can go and you can do all that and it doesn't require, you know, huge lifts in terms of rewriting things or in terms of like, I can't make this do what I want it to do, but it loops, loops back around to having the Jira problem. Right. And the Jira problem is that when you make a tool that is so generalizable, like Jira is, then nobody actually uses it in the same way, in the same place. The Jira that I'm used to at my job, if I went to another company that used Jira, like the way they had their Jira set up would be very different. And I would have to relearn all these different workflows after relearn how it actually worked in practice. Obviously, the syntax of Java is going to be the same. So it's kind of like, yeah, that's the thing that is the same between all these. And if I know some Maven commands, I can probably muddle through it. But the actual practice of like, using Java to build software can be so different from place to place to place. It lacks some consistency that a more centralized or top-down decision-making model might have avoided like you would see in .NET. So that's not really a good or a bad. That's a, like, why would I do .NET instead of Java? That's one reason. Yeah, so it comes for two reasons. The one is obviously the control that Microsoft kind of steers .NET in the direction that they've seen fit in Java over the years, change hands and directions and everything else. But it's also a matter of thing of age, right? I mean, the longer the language develops, the more stuff being added as the ways to do things, or now we do it differently than we did 20 years ago. Yeah, I mean, there are languages which are no less general purpose, like C++, if you want to name. There, there is like way more ways to do the, to do a thing, right? And and the, the ones that we kind of, oh, this is very lean language that there is only one right way to do things, those to, to, trying to be like the new ones, a Go or Kotlin or whatever. Yeah. But, but I, I expect them to have those, well, we rethinked about it. There is a new way to do it, but obviously the old way already exists because there are tons of code written the old way. They're all having there in their future. Yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see if that happens to go with generics, if that causes a, a split in that community. It's tough. It's a tough thing to do. Like you look at, I mean, you can look at how Python did it to get the. This is how not to do it, right? And that's what I was gonna say. Like the Python community got very weird, and we're still like 
having issues over the deprecation of 2.7. And there was the drama with that one particular pep where uh, BDFL stepped down. If you're listening and you don't know much about Python, BDFL is the benevolent dictator for life. He was responsible for Python. He's Python's dad for a very long time. But there was um, a dramatic disagreement over the content of a pep. And he stepped down, though he uh, is back now in some capacity in public life as he currently works at Microsoft, which is very exciting. Benevolent but, dictator emer- emeritus. Yeah, b- benevolent dictator emeritus. I don't think you can step down from it. I think like, Guido yeah, probably is going to be... Here's the thing, right? This is what happens when they try to prevent what we just spoke about, right? This is exactly the whole thing with Python 3 and, and all, all the drama was because some people say, hey, we don't want it to become like you can do everything in in, in tons of ways, when other people say, hey, but we need both. We we have tons of code that we cannot refactor. We need the old style as well. So yeah. I don't think you can win both sides, and you either just keep adding, and then the old folks use the old style, the new folks use the new style, or you just run into the shit show like, what what happened over there? I don't I don't think any other way. Or you can switch languages to a new one once in a while, and then always be on this line on the cutting edge. No, then you end up on like a framework treadmill, like people were with JavaScript for a while. Like there are so many JavaScript web frameworks that were the hot shit that I can't even remember the names of anymore. And everybody thought, oh, this is the next React. This is the next Angular. This is the hotness, and then it just disappeared a year later. And I remember that happening like three or four times. Don't and I mean, you know, I'm sure people still use some of them for sure. Like uh, I think one of them was Ember. Somebody has to still people still I use remember. Ember, yeah, right? people still use Ember. I'm sure. Mm-hmm. But or it's, uh, uh, Vue has Vue oh, gone I, to the, the the great also ran into the sky pile yet? Uh, Vue is my preferred JavaScript framework when I do write front end code. Um, or front end JavaScript, I, I use Vue.js for that just because, I don't know, the syntax of React and Angular don't make as much sense to me. And mm-hmm. I don't really care enough to get good at either of them. Vue is very easy to be mediocre at, mm. which I, I think is, is appealing because I don't write production code. You know, the only, the only people who have to deal with the consequences of my shitty code are me. And sometimes my teammates, yeah. if I'm writing like an internal thing, so it doesn't it doesn't matter uh, how mediocre my code is, which is maybe a good thing, maybe a bad thing. So you know, the great thing about open source mm-hmm. is that because it is this you know big community thing, it can have all these different people under the same roof, right? And I think that's one of the reasons that open telemetry came about. Pivoting what? into my my own topic. What is open telemetry? I'm glad Tell you asked. Telemetry. All right. So if you think, I remember it mentioned earlier how, you know, it's like, ah, I installed Datadog, right? I installed New Relic. And if you are listening to this and you've ever kind of done like APM or you've done monitoring or anything like that, you probably know that one of the things you have to deal with is like this agent. Right, you have to deal with some either a library that you're importing into your code to instrument it, or you know another process you're running on your host or as a sidecar or some somewhere in your system. You're running this program that is capable 
of instrumenting your application with tracing code or you know scraping metrics data from various endpoints and transforming it and sending it off somewhere. Mm-hmm. And this is really frustrating because effectively, as long as you're using that agent, like you're kind of locked in, right? Like you can't just say like, well, I like this agent, but I would rather use, you know, I don't, I don't want to pay for this company anymore, this vendor. So I have to. You're trapped. That's yeah, you're, yeah, you're trapped. And nobody likes being trapped. So the other thing that gets you with this is that, like, let's say you do get the situation where it's like, well, we want to use this new hot thing, right? Like, we we want to use Rust for something. We think we found a really good use for Rust or Erlang or um, Haskell. Haskell. Yeah. Is it Haskell? I, I think it's Haskell. Haskell. I don't know. I learned it by reading. <clears> so <throat> I, I Haskell. I, I, I'm open to being wrong on that, but... Yeah. Either way, like, let's say you, you do... You get in the situation where it's like, ah, I want to use this... And suddenly you can't because or someone says, no, well, you can't because we don't, you know, our monitoring vendor doesn't support that. So open telemetry is designed to sort of fix a lot of these problems. A short history back in 2016-ish or so, 2015-ish, this project called Open Tracing was announced. Uh, it was done through the Cloud Native Computing Foundation. And the idea was... If you want to do distributed tracing across like a polyglot of services, then you need a sort of standardized API to write that tracing code in. And you want something that's portable, right? You want something that doesn't lock you into a vendor. So open tracing was this effort to sort of standardize this and it went out and it uh, was pretty popular. It was a incubating sandbox, whatever the second thing is. Incubating. The first one is Sandbox. Yes, incubating. So it's an incubating project with CNCF. And if you've used Jaeger, if you've used uh, Zipkin Brave, then you probably use Open Tracing. There's a lot of things that eventually got Open Tracing bindings built into them because it's a simple way to make sure that I can write tracing code, I can write tracing instrumentation to my application to my services, and then I don't have to worry about where I'm sending it to. I can send it to an open source and, you know, an open source tool, I can send it to a proprietary tool, whatevs. Brad? Now, a year or two later, there was a project that was open sourced by Google called uh, Census. And so they called it Open Census. And the idea with Open Census was rather similar, but it came from a different place. So the idea with Census was, hey, if you're at Google, you're deploying a service and you're using gRPC for RPCs. You just are. Because sure. it's gRPC and you work at Google. This choice was made for you. <laughs> so the idea of census was like, okay, we're going to use the fact that we control the RPC uh, library to kind of add in this instrumentation package that will instrument all of your RPC calls and give you metrics about them so that we can really easily build distributed tracing across the entire service graph. They said, oh, that's a good idea. So let's open source. They open source that and they kind of add this model of like exporters where you could take that data and you could put it to a bunch of different places. So it would be vendor neutral like open tracing was. And that was a cool project. There were differences between that and open tracing. One of the biggest one being open tracing just provided the API, open census provided kind of the whole kit and caboodle. It was an API and SDK, all these exporters and tools and things. The problem with having these two things that looked very similar and kind of did the same, same or similar things, but weren't actually the same meant that open source library authors and people like Kubernetes and any, anyone that wanted to like instrument their software was kind of faced with this choice of, well, what do I use, right? Do I write open tracing bindings or I write open census bindings? If I write open census bindings, I also have to take a dependency on open census itself because it's distributed as just kind of this one big ball of wax. Inconvenient. 
Yeah. And if I write open tracing bindings, then I still have to have like a mechanism for people to go in and add their own tracer and do all this other stuff. So we had, there was a lot of kind of back and forth between the projects and people saying like, oh, we should do this, we should do that. So a couple of years ago, back in 2018, we all got together in the fall and a few people from both projects kind of sat down with uh, some neutral mediators and we worked out the idea to merge these projects into one because Having them be separate wasn't really helping anybody. It's not good for the community, like ultimately, and that's what open source yeah. shit about. So, yeah. So from those meetings and uh, some initial pilot work came Open Telemetry, and Open Telemetry is a combination of really the best of all of these worlds. So it's a API for tracing metrics and logs that will let you kind of have a vendor neutral, portable way to write tracing code write metrics, uh, you know, a, a way to express metrics, gauges and counters and things like that, and then eventually a way to do logs as well. Then there's a reference implementation or an SDK of all this. So if you are using Java, you can go download OpenTelemetry Java and it just works, right? And if you have another service, let's say you have a, your backend is like some Go, some Java. So you can take OpenTelemetry Go Open telemetry Java and they'll interoperate. So the traces that you start on your Go services mm. will work with the ones that come out of your Java services. And you kind of have this nice, nice, neat trace that shows all the system, your backend services talking to each other. It's great. And the third piece of this is something to replace that agent I talked about, right? For a lot of people, like you said, at the we said at the beginning, this is, this is about being lazy, right? Like we <laughs> want to be lazy. We don't want to do a lot of work. So the idea with the open telemetry collector is that it's like a Swiss army knife that you can throw on your system. You can set it up as like a sidecar or as like a, an agent process on the host or whatever you want to do. Pull it in a bunch of different ways and tell it, Hey, collect, you know, all of my stuff from proc, right? Collect uh, windows system metrics and events, collect MySQL stuff, collect Prometheus metrics, do whatever. Also receive, you know, Hey, maybe I've got some Jaeger traces or some Zipkin traces. Okay. Receive those two. Uh, maybe I'm sending open telemetry traces to it. Receive those two. And then on the other side of it, send it out wherever. Send it to, you know, Jaeger. Send it to Prometheus. Send it to New Relic or Datadog or even send it to Lightstep because it's this universal it's sort of, yeah, it's a universal sort of tool that replaces in a lot of ways all the things that those proprietary agents would do for you. And it's broadly supported by all of these different monitoring and observability companies so you know no more like oh i like this thing but I, I i can't use something else i have to use this vendor now you can use any vendor so are you telling me that two competing open source projects actually sat down and talked to each other and that, that's not the first i mean i understand why are you surprised but that's definitely not the first time and but it often as it should you know like they were they were in a they created a situation that was bad for the community yep. and instead of like stubbornly digging their heels in they worked together and built something that was better than the sum of its parts i mean that doesn't a, happen as often as it should it doesn't and uh, here's a real a real exclusive take for you all it actually wasn't the first time like there had been talks, I want to say the year before, I don't know the exact date, but I know that the time, the time we sat down and actually hashed it out this time was not the first time. And 
one of the reasons that it worked this time is because specifically because we came in and got a neutral mediator from the CNCF to kind of be a part of it and hmm. you know, help smooth over things. Provide that actually. I did I didn't know that was a thing they would do. And I mean, I, yeah, no. They, did you know they would do that? Like mediate between? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, I heard this story. I think it was very well done. And uh, yeah, I'm a fan. I'm a fan of the process. And of the outcome, by the way, uh, the, the previous examples that we know about how those competing projects come together and come up with a standard, they usually settle up on the lowest common denominator, only the things that they agree. And they're like, okay, this is the standard. Everything else that we do, this is our like competitive advantage and uh, use us instead of the standard. Right. Yeah. That's how it usually works. But this time it was different and I think it was great. Yeah. I think there was a lot of, to put on my cynic hat for a second, like I, I do believe that quite a bit of the incentive here was, at least on the vendor side, is that the cost of like maintaining instrumentation is extremely, and agents is extremely high. If, if you're a Datadog, if you're whoever, a new relic, like writing all that code, like, it's not free and it really ain't cheap and it's a big investment for something that doesn't necessarily even keep customers. Uh, my fun story here is like Datadog open source, it's tracing its APM agents a while ago, you know, I think maybe forever ago. I don't remember when it happened. It's been a long time. And you could go uh, to certain other companies that had tracing APM agents and you could kind of start diffing, their repos for certain instrumentation plugins, and it's just like 100% the same, right? They would strip the headers, and and at one level, it's kind of like you could say, like, oh, but on the other hand, it's like, well, no shit. Like, it's the same code. You're doing the same fucking thing in both places. You can, there's no, like, innovation in how do I instrument the yeah. Postgres driver for tracing. There's only one way. You There's can only act. one way to do it. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it it really made no sense in most cases for a lot of these companies to have sort of to have this expenditure on, you know, like oh we're gonna have a proprietary code base. Like even New Relic is open sourcing their agents as part of this, right? Like I think they announced their plans were by summer 2021 to have like you know New Relic compatible distributions of open telemetry, and. Amazon has kind of gone on this boat, like there's X-Ray and uh, ECS, EMR, CloudWatch, whatever. Everyone's kind of dealing with slightly different ways, but there's maybe a generalized agreement of, hey, it's a lot easier to kind of work together on these sort of things. And then from the projects, like from the project governance side, it just, that just took a lot of like building trust, honestly. Like I have probably spent my the past several years working on this as a decent part of my time and just helping to bring these sort of competing vendors and interests together and making sure that like, Hey, yeah, I know that your company has different goals than mine and blah, 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 blah. but in inside the open telemetry circle, we are all friends. That and, is very DevOps of you. Well, thank you. It is. We're, we're supposed to be a culture of collaboration. If we get to screech, DevOps is a culture, not tooling on social media and in talks when we're allowed on stage that we have to actually like do that in our communities. Otherwise, yeah. like I don't know, we're talking out of our asses. Well, I mean, in a lot of cases we are, but I mean, yeah, but I talk out of my ass on Twitter. Yeah, that's true. 
you know. No, I think it, it, it's rewarding though, right? It's a it's rewarding okay. thing to see kind of come off the way it has. So, well, thank you for joining us, Austin. Thank you for having me. Lovely, you've been very educational. Ooh. Our guests aren't usually educational. Usually, they're just fun. So, you're oh, okay. Fun and educational. It's like, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, we'll have to book another one of these, um, and I'll just come back and be fun. We've yeah, to talk we'll about do, cheese school. We'll do a DevOps speakeasy after dark, and it'll just be uh, live shit posting. Hell yeah! The best. We'll, we'll see how that goes. Um, we'll bring drinks. It's a speakeasy. All right. Where can the people find you again, Austin? So you can find me on Twitter and most other places at Austin L Parker. Rad. I've been your host, Kat Cosgrove. You can find me on the internet at Dixie3Flatline. And this has also been my co-host, Baruch. And you can find me at J Baruch everywhere. Kat, thank you very much for hosting. Austin, thank you very much for coming. Thanks for having me. And we will see you, hear you, whatever. You will hear us in the next episodes of the Devil Speaking Podcast. Bye.